How can Catholic people prepare for this year's election? Sister Simone Campbell and renowned speakers will help us think. Vatican Nuncio Christophe Pierre will help us pray. Register for AUSCP's June Assembly at auscp.org. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. I am Zach Davis, alone in the studio today. Ashley is out this week on a reporting trip, and as Ashley mentioned last week, we are taking some time right now to work on what the future Jesuitical is going to look like. Uh, Don't worry, Jesuitical's best days are still ahead of us, and we appreciate your patience with us as we're taking some time to, you know, give you some great old interviews as we plan for the future of the show. Uh, So this week, we're marking Black History Month. We thought it would be a good time to bring out our interview with Dr. Shannon D. Williams. She is an assistant professor of history at Villanova University, and Her work specializes in the untold history of black nuns in the U.S. Catholic Church. Uh, She calls this a dangerous history for U.S. Catholics, right? Because as we've covered on the show before, uh, when we're looking at the ways that the Catholic Church has been complicit and also led on racial issues in the United States— There are sins that need to be reckoned with that haven't been reckoned with before, Um, but also some really inspiring stories. And so Shannon D. Williams' work is uh, a great representative of that. So we talked to her about some of her research that's found in her forthcoming book, Subversive Habits, The Untold Story of Black Catholic Nuns in the United States. So here's our interview with Dr. Shannon D. Williams. So joining us today via Skype is Dr. Shannon D. Williams. She's the author of the forthcoming book, Subversive Habits, The Untold Story of Black Catholic Nuns in the United States. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited to have you. So we kind of want to get into why did you want to tell this story of black women religious in the United States and sort of how did you get into it? Initially, I used to tell people, oh, I just came to this project by chance. Um, I, when I entered graduate school at Rutgers in 2006, I was completely unaware of the history of Black female religious life um, in the United States and certainly in the wider Atlantic world. Um, The only Catholic sisters that I knew, Black or otherwise, were sisters that I saw on television um, through Hollywood representations. I grew up in the 80s and the 90s in a southern suburban parish where there were no sisters. Um, So it was really... So like Sister Act or or more than that also? So Sister Act, but also, you know, the Father Dowling mysteries. Does anyone remember those? Uh, It was like a priest and a sister. They would investigate these mysteries. It's a really great show. (laughs) But certainly Sister Act was, um, for me, I guess, um, or at least Sister Mary Clarence was the only Black sister that I knew. And then Mm -hmm. the women in in the film were the only sisters that I knew, although I certainly had a sense of who sisters were um, from my Catholic background. But no, um, It was chance, per se. I was really interested in in studying religious women's contributions to the Black freedom struggle, particularly in the Black power movement when I went to graduate school at Rutgers. And I was searching for a paper topic for a seminar in African-American history. And I was going through microfilm of the Pittsburgh Courier, which was a national Black newspaper, one of the most important ones of the 20th century. And I stumbled upon a newspaper article announcing the formation of the National Black Sisters Conference at Mount Mercy College in Pittsburgh in 1968. And I experienced what I can only call a metanoia Um, beyond sort of the title of the article. I think it was 200 Negro sisters uh, meet uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, They featured 
on the front page a photograph of about five or six African-American nuns. And that was the first time that I had seen sort of real nuns. And I asked myself that question, like, how have these women been so invisible to me? I'm a, I'm a cradle Catholic. Um, right. And these are women who are embracing Black power. So I was really intrigued, to say the very least. Uh, what, what is metanoia? And what do you mean by metanoia? Like metanoia in the sense of spiritual awakening. Um, so even at that moment, right, I'm a cradle Catholic. I was, again, born into the Catholic Church, baptized as an infant. Um, but at that point in my life, I was considering leaving the church. Um, I loved being I loved being Catholic, um, but I was very uneasy about my place in the church. I didn't know much Black Catholic history outside of my own family story, um, a very select sort of uh, piece of history. My mother is actually the first Black woman to graduate from the University of Notre Dame. Wow. And I grew up in a household. Dang. Uh, in a family in which everyone sort of talked about that, right? You know who your mother is. Um, everyone talked about it except my mother. Um, it is a subject that remains, for the most part, unspeakable to this day. Um, it was a difficult time. We know that the plight of the pioneers is always difficult. Mm-hmm. And so beyond that, no one else in my family was Catholic. I knew that my mother had converted as a young girl in Catholic schools in Savannah, Georgia. But beyond that, I just thought of the story of the Black Catholic or the story of Black Catholics in the United States was the story of conversion. I didn't know too much more about that. So when I came to this project, it was kind of like, oh my goodness, um, here's my place in the church. Here's a story of Black Catholic women who I was beginning to realize had a very long history in the church. Where, do, where does that story start? Like, what's, what's the span of your research? It starts in the early eight, 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that the first Black sisters in the United States, at least on record, were members of the Sisters of Loretto at the foot of the cross, which is a community in Kentucky, in central Kentucky, in the Catholic Holy Land there. Um, We know that they at least had um, an auxiliary community of Black sisters, although there is contemporary research that suggests that some of their earliest members may have been free women of color passing for white. Uh, Mm -hmm. The first successful community of Black women religious were the Oblate Sisters of Providence in Baltimore. They are founded in 1829. And the second successful community are the Sisters of the Holy Family in New Orleans. And that story is really important because when we think about the history of the modern Atlantic world, although we know that female religious life actually began in the ancient tradition in Africa, we don't see it particularly in the Roman Catholic tradition until the 19th century. Certainly with the rise of the transatlantic slave trade, you're going to have sisters who are in communities in Latin America as early as the 17th and even the 16th century, but many of them are relegated to um, sort of second class and third class status within their communities. Most of them are sort of the maids and the domestic. Many of them were slaves themselves or ex-slaves. In the case of the Holy Family Sisters, it was first founded as a community for Afro-Creole women of elite status. Um, but you're always going to have Black women who are coming from the Caribbean, from Canada, and places where they could not go into communities coming into these Black orders. And so uh, we don't think about the story of Black sisters is a transnational story. We think about sort of the story of the American Catholic experience, but it's important to remember that there is another transatlantic story of American Catholic sisters, one that's actually far more dominant than we have given credit for. Indeed, if we look at um, sort of the Americas, the vast majority of the practitioners of Catholicism have been people of color and particularly people of African descent and indigenous descent. And so we really need to complicate that story in our understandings of the American Catholic experience. Um, And so on the one hand, we see that their origins lie in the 19th century, but they actually go back further than that. Many of these women are descendants of the slaves of the church. um, And that matters. And we can trace them back to the 17th century. Uh, Many of these women actually have blood rights. And and you're talking about Kentucky in the the 19th century. So this is happening while slavery is still legal in the United States. 
Right. So that's the other amazing story, right? That you have these communities in the case of the Oblates and the Holy Family Sisters, they're founded in cities that contain two of the nation's largest slave markets. And so what does it mean that these women who are free, who are also teaching enslaved children, um, sometimes surreptitiously, but sometimes at least um, doing catechetical work among the enslaved, um, are, are able to be founded in those communities. And what does that mean if we think about sort of these proto-feminist ideals of what it meant to embrace the celibate religious state for these women, to be in a society in which Black women's bodies, Black bodies, but Black women's bodies in particular are commodified, are displayed um, in the nude and auctioned off. And what does it mean for these women to say that no, no one has a right to my body except my God, to be able to take the veil and what that means um, for these women. And certainly in the case of the Holy Family Sisters, um, they are very sort of conscious of that. We know that after the abolition of slavery, they begin to buy up properties that were associated with the sins of slavery. And in their first written history, they say that we have to expiate the sins of slavery. So one of their first schools was a former slave trader's pen. In the case of their mother house, which was one of the few or the only Black-owned property in the French Quarter at one time, was the former quadroom ballroom, where women of their color and caste would have been forced to sort of engage in these sexually exploitative systems, um, relationships. Um, that free women of color were forced to engage in um, as a result of sort of slavery and sort of the limitations uh, placed upon them at that particular moment in American history. So, Shannon, can you give us a sort of can you give us one story of a woman that would kind of help our listeners understand what it was like to be a black woman religious, like an example of a woman that you've met in your research that's inspirational? Um, Well, there is the story of uh, Sister M. Martin DePores Gray, who was the foundress of the National Black Sisters Conference. She's now Dr. Patricia Gray. She left religious life in the 1970s. But I think her story is really important. Um, She was Pittsburgh's first Black religious sister of mercy. And I think what's really great about um, understanding sort of the history of racial segregation and exclusion in female religious life and the story of these women who desegregated these historically white sisterhoods, um, her story is really important because I think it is illustrative of the trials that many pioneering Black sisters had to face in their communities. We know that many white orders went to extraordinary lengths to keep Black women out of their ranks. So she was not taught by the Sisters of Mercy, the community that she entered. Instead, um, she was familiar with the Sisters of St. Joseph of Baden, Pennsylvania, um, who were staffed um, or who were at her parish, her home parish in Sewickley, Pennsylvania, which is a, a suburb of Pittsburgh. When she applied to enter that community, she was given sort of rejection. And it was difficult for her because her mother actually worked for those sisters. And so it was a really sort of difficult time for that family. Um, And then she sort of went on to nursing school um, that was operated by the Sisters of Mercy. And then a year later, um, she was admitted into that community. Um, She noted that there were other Black women who had been rejected in the years before, but a change in leadership made her admission possible in 1961. She talks about experiences with individual women in the community. It gets pretty devastating when you hear some of the the bullying and the abuse um, that many of these pioneering sisters faced. And it was the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968 that really was a turning point in her life. Um, What we don't generally like to talk about is the fact that, you know, King's assassination was celebrated in certain segments of American society, particularly in white Catholic communities and convents and seminaries. And so for pioneering Black priests and sisters who were in those communities, King's assassination was that cataclysmic moment, right? Which might answer, I was going to ask you, you, you've written um, that since the 60s and 70s, as religious life as a whole, a lot of people left, but uh, you you found that Black Catholics left at like twice the rate of white Catholics. Uh, Was that the thing that kind of drove people out of the convents? 
You know, that was certainly something that was that statistic comes from the research of the National Black Sisters Conference, mm-hmm. particularly when they are uh, being formed. And in the case of Sister M. Martin DePores Gray, King is assassinated. Something happens in her community, but she's allowed to sort of go and be a part of the formation of the National Black Catholic Clergy Caucus, where the priests get together and they release this sort of historic statement in which they say that the Catholic Church is primarily a white racist institution. Patty Gray is there. She's excluded. And then she is encouraged to go and organize the Black sisters across the country. So what was really interesting is she goes back to her community. Her superior gives her permission to write to the mother superiors um, across the country. And one of the first things that she that she does is ask how many Black sisters that they have. And if they have Black sisters, can you send them? And it became very clear to her while she's writing these letters and receiving feedback that many of the pioneering Black sisters in white communities were leaving. So superiors mm-hmm. are writing and saying, you know, we would love to be able to send our Black sister, but she just left. She left the community. We don't know what's going on. But in this period between April 4th and um, King is assassinated on April 4th and the National Black Sisters Conference opens on April 16th, um, we know that she found scores of black sisters who are leaving their communities for reasons that they don't know what's going on. And so one of the first things that happens at this Pittsburgh meeting, this historic gathering, is that sisters begin to tell their stories. And in in the next couple of meetings, they begin to recognize that sisters are leaving for a host of reasons, um, but many of them are sort of being driven by racism. And so they begin to sort of study what is happening, what is driving sisters out of their communities, and they begin to develop programs to be able to stop that, to be able to ensure retention, um, especially if they are going to survive in the church at a moment in which Black Catholics, for the first time, are really beginning to seize power in ways that they had not been able to do so in their church. Shannon, you've said that Black sisters matter, but they sort of constitute this dangerous memory for the church. Uh, What is that danger for the church? I mean, one cannot tell the story of Black Catholic sisters in the United States without confronting the church's largely unreconciled history of slavery, segregation, and colonialism. And so giving you another example of a sister, um, a sister's name whose name is uh, sort of being widely uh, remembered in this contemporary moment, and that is that of Sister Mary Aloysius Beecraft or Anne Marie Beecraft, who was an early Oblate Sister of Providence. It is likely, according to sources that we have, that she was the paternal granddaughter of Charles Carroll of Carrollton, who was the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was one of Maryland's largest, as wealthiest slaveholders. Um, and so what these stories tell us is that many Black sisters not only have a birthright to American democracy, but also a birthright to the American church. Uh, Many of them, if they are not sort of related um, by blood to many of the nation's earliest bishops um, or sisters, they are the slaves. They are related to the slaves of many of those communities. Um, And many of these women can sort of trace their lineage back well into the colonial period in Louisiana and Maryland, um, and then certainly beginning with the great migration of Catholics from Maryland into Kentucky, which is how you get those that large black Catholic community in Kentucky there. So it's a dangerous memory because what does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean where you have these sisters who whose history is not simply hidden? In many ways, it's been suppressed. Um, and for me, it's been a very difficult journey, specifically beginning to find those stories. And as I begin to tell them, people become very unsettled because we have told ourselves particular stories about the church that in many ways are not true. You mentioned Georgetown and Georgetown in recent years has been trying to grapple with its history of slave owning. Um, What kind of what kind of work, what other works of reconciliation 
are happening or do you think need to happen as a church we're grappling with this with this history? Well, first off, you know, there were three orders, uh, sisterhoods in Kentucky who also formally apologized for their slaveholding past um, in the early decade of the 21st century. They built monuments. In the case of the Sisters of Loretto, they built monuments not only to their slaves, but potentially to their um, earliest Black sisters. Um, you know, I think there is much work to be done. I think part of what has to happen and what's really great about what's happening at Georgetown is not simply that they're apologizing, but they also establish an institute to study slavery, to actually know what Catholic slavery looked like. Um, So many, if you talk to a lot of people, they'll say that, well, you know, Catholic slavery must have been um, a little bit better. You know, they're at least baptizing their slaves. Maybe it was less violent. Um, But the the records don't suggest that. We oftentimes cite Pope Gregory's um, condemnation of the slave trade in 1839, but we also have to go back to Pope Nicholas V's um, Dumb Diverses, which was offered in 1452, which basically sanctioned slavery. It basically sanctioned perpetual enslavement. It basically gave uh, the Portuguese permission to go enslave pagans um, in various parts of the Atlantic world. So that's one place where we have to start. I think it's just a matter of acknowledging sort of the role of the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church was never an innocent bystander in the rise of the transatlantic slave trade and in Catholic slaveholding itself. Religious orders of men and women in the Americas were sometimes the largest uh, slaveholders in their respective communities. Um, and even beyond that, beyond slavery, there is this history of racial segregation and exclusion that we have to really confront in female religious life and religious life in general. One way to begin is to actually sort of follow the lead of some sisters who have begun to apologize um, to women who were rejected admission into their communities. In the case of Dr. Patricia Gray, formerly Sister M. Martin DePore. I mean, because these people are still alive, right? Right. So in the case of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Baden, um, when they learned, when a member of their community learned that they had rejected uh, Dr. Gray's uh, application in 1961, she immediately went to her superior. They went into their archive and they contacted her and went through a formal reconciliation process. Other communities are beginning to go in their archives to see if they can find the conversations around admitting sort of Negro girls, right? What that conversation looked like in their congregational records. Um, Were there letters that were rejected? How were were they rejected? What what was the extent? Sort of what's been really interesting to me, again, is sort of the extraordinary lens that some communities went to keep Black women out of their ranks. Um, The preference for lighter-skinned women, those Black women who were born outside of the United States as opposed to those who were in the United States. There are all these nuances depending on the community so for me, I think the first necessary step is to actually investigate each congregation's or order's um, own complicity and role in perpetuating and maintaining slavery and or segregation um, in religious life and beyond. You mentioned you mentioned um, that when you started this research, you were you were kind of on the fence about staying Catholic, but uh, you you stayed in the church. Uh, what role did research this research have in your faith life? Everything. Um, Had I not encountered this history, I would be gone, not because I don't love being a Catholic, but because I felt not welcomed. Um, I have my own sort of stories and experiences of exclusion in the church. Um, But I think more importantly, I just didn't know my place in the church. I didn't know the history. Um, And the history that I did know was a history in which my mother did not freely share. So listening to these women's stories, and they are powerful testimonies of faith. What these women endured, what they survived, um, was for me, it was what became necessary for me to stay in the church. Because if these women could stay and maintain their faith 
um, in the face of oftentimes gut-wrenching discrimination, I knew that I could stay. But I also knew that I wasn't a stranger in the church. Like I said, I used to tell people that, oh, well, you know, I came to this story by chance. Actually, it was more so providential serendipity. Um, I, without these women, without their testimonies, so many of them, these women were preaching to me and they didn't realize that I was on my way out of the church. They were sort of keeping me in the church, sort of telling their stories. So (laughs) I'm I'm extremely thankful for it. But just to answer your question again, without these women, without knowing this history, I would be gone. So, Shannon, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I think our listeners are going to benefit from just the research and from your forthcoming book. Um, I just can't wait for your stuff to just be like (laughs) everywhere and taught. Yeah. Every Catholic. I mean, like this is all just so like you don't grow up hearing any of this. And you don't. You you really, really don't. So one final question for you, though. If you could canonize anyone living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? That is a fantastic question. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know. The Archdiocese of Chicago has sort of launched or opened the cause for Augustus Colton. Um, so I would actually launch the cause mm-hmm. for his mother, Mary Jane. She is the, you know, she was a cradle Catholic from Kentucky. She was sold away from her family into Missouri, married Augustus, Augustus's father in a Catholic church. Um, her story is amazing. But what's most important, after her husband is killed in the Civil War, um, after, you know, Justice Cheney, the nation's first Catholic Supreme Court justice, basically sort of issues that, you know, infamous declaration in the Dred Scott decision that, you know, Black people would never be citizens and, 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 and so on. Three years later, she marches her children, her three young children, um, from slavery in Missouri to freedom in Illinois. And then she makes sure that they all have a Catholic education. Indeed, when Augusta Tolson becomes the first, uh, the nation's first self-identified Black priest, his mother and his sister go with him to Chicago. And that ministry um, and the foundations that they were able to lay in Chicago, which is an important Black Catholic community today, um, were laid not just by Augustus, but his mother and his sister as well. And so for me, it is the story of Mary Jane Tolson. Um, who marched her children to freedom, um, who ensured that they would have a Catholic education, um, who gave rise to the nation's first Black Catholic priest, um, is a story. In many ways, she she is representative of all these nameless um, and faceless Black Catholic laywomen who laid the foundation of the church upon whose shoulders so much of the Black Catholic community, not only in the United States, but also in the modern, uh, sort of in the Atlantic world, it rests. And so it would be her. Okay, so St. Mary Jane Tolton. Pray for us. Shannon, thank you so much. Uh, This has been really great. Thank you so much for having me.